3: Are you struggling to find the right professional talent for your project? Are you working with a limited budget?
2: We are so excited about our next sponsor, Casting Networks. I have personally used Casting Networks to release a number of projects for free to the industry's largest network of professional performers for my commercial work and for my very first short film, Strange Thing.
3: Creators can manage submissions, schedule auditions, request and review self-tapes, and book top talent for their projects all in one place. All for free.
2: on casting networks you can create an account and send your casting call to thousands of professional talent so join casting networks the industry's preferred casting platform where more than 1.2 million performers have scheduled over 14 million auditions that's a lot of auditions visit www.castingnetworks.com movies to create an account for free today you know
3: making movies is hard making movies is hard
2: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on all the places digital that you can buy it. The DVD is also available on Amazon, so you can get it very many ways.
3: I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on 8 More. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative.
2: This week, we welcome writer director Zoe Elise Salnave on the show to talk about directing her first feature Voodoo Macbeth as a USC grad student. What it was like working with nine other co-directors and how the film has impacted her career now that it is about to be released. Theatrically. After the interview, don't go away because we have another installment of The Game and Alrick asks Liz about the importance or non-importance of reviews. But first, Liz, what have you been up to?
3: I love it. It's like, Alrick asks Liz. Alrick, you ask me. What am I up to? I had to write it down. I am just waiting for rejection. I am just like every minute refreshing my email, just being like, when is this rejection coming? I know it's coming when is it just drip off the band-aid? I just want it to happen already. We will announce this later, but we are going to a film festival that I submitted my short film to. And I know like that they've made selections because I'm EP on another movie that got in, and I'm trying to like worm my way into someone giving me an early rejection. Like <laughs> I'm friends with like the former program director, and I'm like, Can you just can you just find out for me? And he's like, There's still a chance you weren't rejected. And I was like, Harrison, it's not gonna happen. Just like, just tell me. So I am what am I up to? I'm refreshing my email to be rejected by Austin Film Festival. And then a colleague of mine got into the half initiative and I've applied for three years straight. And you know, they may still be making selections, but I'm just waiting for them to to email me and say no, no, you didn't get in, Liz. And then just to like eat pizza afterwards, right? <laughs> so maybe, oh, I just wow. got a new email. Was it that? Was it that? Let's just look really quickly. Uh, it's not. It's not that. Oh, man. Damn it.
2: I know that feeling. I know the refresh feeling. It's I hate like, it. So oh, it's much. killer, man.
3: What are you up to? Probably much more exciting things than waiting for rejection.
2: Well, I think we should just announce it right now because I want to announce it near the front of the show, not the end of the show. So. Okay,
3: and I already kind
2: of said it. Sorry. We are going to the Austin <laughs> Film Festival. The podcast will be there. Liz. <laughs> Myself and Eric, it's going to be fantastic. And we have a very exciting special guest we have to announce. Yes. I want to do the honors just because I'm a big fan. Craig Mazin will be on the show. Oh, my God. And I think most people listening to this will know who he is. Anyone else I talk to in the real world like who don't listen to a filmmaking podcast doesn't know who Craig Mazin is. (laughs) But they should because he is an incredible writer. He's a showrunner of shows such as Chernobyl and the upcoming The Last of Us, which is incredible. I can't wait for this freaking show. There's so much hype around it. And I love the games. I played, played all the games. But anyway, so Craig's going to be on the show. It's, it's incredible. I can't wait. I mean, I listened to like, when I was listening to podcasts, Script Notes was my favorite podcast. It is why this podcast exists originally because I was listening to Script Notes and wishing like, why don't Craig and John talk more about director stuff? Why is all stupid writing stuff all the time? I was like, <laughs> this should be a director show that's just like Script Notes, but for directors. And at the time, there wasn't one. So then I was like, well, let's do one and then of course you know the just shoot it guys did it at the same time so there was like now there's two which is great so i don't know super inspired by by craig and, and john august you know for their show and you know i love craig's point of view so i'm i don't know i'm fanboying over craig too much but i won't do it when we actually interview him because yeah i kind of related to craig a lot Oh, oh, always in the show, and he's a gamer. I'm a gamer. Anyways, anyways, anyways. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it on the on the cool. When we
3: actually, talk yeah, when it. we talk to him, you'll. But no, but the enthusiasm helps. And also, yeah, I really buried lead, and I made it very selfish. Like we are going to the Austin <laughs> Film Festival. It's a fantastic film festival. Very excited for everyone who got accepted by the Austin Film Festival. We are going to Texas. I will be eating tacos. You will be eating tacos. That there's lots lots to look uh, forward
2: to. Yeah, I've also been rejected by the Austin Film Festival for every movie. (laughs) (laughs)
3: this is a fun
2: trip already i just thought i wasn't gonna go unless i got in and like well but here's the the next best reason to go to the austin film festival besides getting in is to be there to interview people and do a live show we're definitely gonna do a live show we don't know what that is yet we have some very exciting things about that we can't announce yet because they're not official but yeah it'll be a lot of fun so if you're in austin come out and see us if you're not in Austin, you'll hear lots of great things yes. that we do while we're out at Austin. So it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. But yeah, what am I doing? Oh man, I'm like still recovering from the release of my movie. Feel like I, you know, drank a lot of alcohol when I didn't really. <laughs> it just feels very draining. The mm-hmm. whole experience of like reading about your movie, reading reviews, like watching video reviews of people video reviewing your movie.
3: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you've ever. I think that maybe this is like a, a genre thing. But yeah, they don't like, do
3: it. For- for like my indie dramedy, May no, December romance there's not, there's movie. Not indie
2: drama <laughs> video reviews out there, but I think there was like three I got from my movie, which was wow, really awesome. That's interesting. Two positive, one negative. I'll take it. You know, whatever. Yeah, you know, it's been fun. It's been interesting. I, I talked about it a little bit on the Patreon site. I did a couple of videos uh, just talking about my feelings and what was going on and some of the things I've been doing. But yeah, I feel like the dust seems like it's kind of settled a little bit. Like I don't think we're really going to get many more reviews or any more reviews. Probably feels like it's over, yeah. which which is great, which is fine. I mean, you know, we got a seventy five percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is like it's great. I think pretty fucking great. I'm pretty excited about that. With eight reviews, I think so like you know six positive yeah. two negative. Not bad. Our rating is still it's not the best on IMDb. We are five point five out of ten out of like seventy. Oh, or we're like or a two
3: point nine. Do not even worry about <laughs> that. It's like we are like <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. there's I think that's where trolls go to ruin our day yeah. is IMDB ratings.
2: <laughs> where, where people go to, to make you feel bad about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Lettered box is a little bit better. We're like three point two now I think we were three point four for a long time, but you know, it's good. whatever you know. I, I yeah. feel like I'm really happy. People are watching the movie. There was a couple, yeah. so I have this like one linked to the trailer that's got like 167 thousand views now. It's like still going up slowly, <laughs> but there's a couple of people who. One person was like watching this movie right now. Not as bad as I thought. Actually, pretty good. <laughs> Thirty minutes in, I recommend it. And then like somebody else was like, "Okay, I'll give it a shot." Was, like, oh, that's wow.
3: cool. You're like live. <laughs> you're you're in real time watching people yeah. engage with your. Film.
2: Like, oh, there's two sales. Cool. Very neat. Yeah, from strangers. So, yeah, it's it's been exciting. You know, there's been a lot of action on my, my new movie that I'm working on. You know, we're kind of moving things forward. We had a meeting with the casting director. She's, like, working on another movie right now. So, like, sort of going to be slow with her activity, but, like, she's going to mm-hmm. be in board to, like, help us, you know, approach some of these actors and starting to get some more intelligence on some of these people that we're trying to reach out to. I'm working on the script daily with the writer. We're, like, cutting it down. We've already cut, like, nine pages out of the damn thing, which is great. And hoping it's to funny. cut it some more. So yeah that that one it's funny it feels like it's moving like at light speed although in reality <laughs> nothing's really happened <laughs> like we're still like in the same position as all the films that you're in development on we're still like trying to put cast together we're still just trying to like you know play that same game everyone else is playing like yeah. you know try to get the ca- the right cast that can get us the budget and move things forward although the team seems very enthusiastic about it No, oh, like, as long you know, are, as you're getting the... people
3: responding to emails you know what i mean as long yeah. as people are as long as there's momentum on on your side. It doesn't really matter, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I'm I'm actually watching my email for updates on that project, kind of the same way that you're looking for your rejection emails, which you know, I think may not be rejections because I do think like you're reaching out to all these people directly. If you were rejected they would have just told you by now, so you must still be in the running somehow. So I feel like that's Maybe. a little bit of excitement,
3: or people just like feeling comfortable saying negative things, you know. Or or he was too lazy. He was too lazy to ask, you know. And there's millions of reasons. <laughs> Yeah,
2: but I've done the same thing before, and then I've gotten people like, "Yeah, you haven't got, you didn't get in." <laughs> like I literally like same situation where I've reached yeah. out to people, and they're like, "Oh no, yeah, you didn't make it." You know, I'm like, "Oh okay, cool, thanks." You know, so I think if you didn't make it, they would have told you. Although I have gotten the same thing as you, where they're just like, "We can't tell you until the date. Got to wait for the date." I'm like, "I know, I didn't get in. Just tell me." And then of course I
3: and I know. I mean, like w- we do it in casting. You and I, right? Like you don't tell the people that you don't want them until you have the person you want who says yes. Yeah. And they've signed a contract, you have to have your backup plan. But I think that there should just be this level of kindness and rejection for the people who are not on the bubble. Like if you're not on the bubble, let them loose. I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I I run a Facebook group called Film Festival Notifications. And the idea is like, once you hear from a film festival, you just tell everyone else so that they know that they weren't told yet. And that means something to them, right? That means that they probably are not in the first run of selections. And I think that kind of chatter needs to happen in this industry because the powers that be want to keep us in the dark. So this is part of like a global (laughs) problem that I have with how this industry communicates with each other and so I just want the band-aid ripped off like I want oh, just give it to me just give me that just band-aid give. rip
2: yeah, yeah. Let me know. Yeah. The other thing that I want people to let us know is if you're a supporter on Patreon, you can go over to patreon.com slash podcast. check out what we offer, what we're offering. And then the main thing that you're getting from being a Patreon is our love, of course. Yeah. And then also weekly staff meetings with Eric, Liz, and I, which are a lot of fun. And then bonus videos and bonus episodes. I swear we do have a bonus episode that's going to come out one of these days. I've got it like half, like like it, basically is an hour and a half of work that I don't have to give it to it right now. But if with a, once I find an hour and a half, I will finish this damn bonus episode and I'll post it and it'll be out and it'll be great. But yeah, so check this out there, you know, makes a big difference for us. Don't also forget to check out Jambox.io. They are a royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. You can use our code MMIH to get a 20% discount today. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Zoe Elise Salme. We are here today with the wonderful Zoe Elise Salnov. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Give us the elevator pitch for your film, Voodoo Macbeth.
4: Oh, god, I'm not ready. (laughs) The elevator pitch. Voodoo Macbeth is a retelling of the very true occurrence of Orson Welles directing the all black cast of Voodoo in Harlem during the Great Depression. And he centered it instead of being in, in England or Scotland, he centered it in Haiti. And so that's where the Voodoo part of Macbeth comes in. And it's sort of casted as close to reality, but it was the actual event that happened in, in the 30s.
3: Can you, just a bonus for other people listening, can you add a little bit of context of how the film was made? Just a quick summary of the m- multiple directors and and where the yeah. the film came out of.
4: Absolutely. So I was a graduate student at USC. USC does this thing every several years. I want to say about every four years, they have a program with Warner Brother where they actually pair up. They staff a feature film, and it's with a number of directors that sort of get merited in this position. They're sort of put under a microscope for the duration of their graduate program to see how they direct obviously but interact how collaborative they are etc and then sort of simultaneously a writer's room is staffed to write the feature films they write it one semester and then the next semester goes off and gets filmed with the directors that get chosen this one in particular i think we just had a really good cohort so we have 10 people that directed it previous iterations of this our project had directors like about eight of them they all did different sorts of projects we have the thomasina we have we've had previous movies I've actually gone into Netflix, which is kind of exciting.
3: I just want to make sure we still have you or that you still have me. Because can everyone hear me?
2: How many days did you shoot the film?
3: We recorded
4: over 28 days. Think we maybe had a couple of pickup days, but that was our schedule of 28.
2: And was it full 12-hour days each day? Absolutely. Wow. Grueling. 28.
4: Sometimes going from like 3 to 3. Many times, I don't know why, but that was my time slot, was to go till 3 in the morning. Wow. And at that point, really, nobody really wants to be working.
2: And so, even though you were one of 10 directors, were you on set every day of the shoot?
4: I tried to be. So, we had the option to like accompany our fellow co-directors, and we had all collaborated for the beginning on look style the way that we wanted to direct actors you know the way that we wanted to create the environment on set etc so like everything that we made up to the point that we started actually filming our own individual scenes have been really collaborative so there was the invitation for folks to come sit in and you know a little bit of co-directing but also we all wanted to give each other the space to do our scenes we all did our own research on our scenes and things like that but could be present i'm in a number of scenes just as we had We needed more extras. So like Uh. many times I'm like in the crowds, I'm in the theater. I'm someone that like kind of brushes past Cameron for a transition during like a riot scene. So, you know, several of us got dressed up and and got into character for some folks just to help out and a couple of us were just there for like emotional support for the other directors.
2: That's awesome. If you can say, what was the rough budget of the film?
4: So it's a little difficult to say, but or it's a little difficult to to calibrate, but because we got so much student discounting and because we got so much like in kind donation of like space, equipment and things from Warner Brother, I think I think we spent about 200k but when they've done the budget of what it would have been had we paid for things and had we paid for actors right we're all we everyone was sag deferred it was about 2 million 2 million plus
2: Ooh. wow
4: yeah this is a big production we had big jibs we had lots of rental cars like doing a period piece with no money is like is impossible. I don't know how we got that done, but we had great producers that did it, but it was a big undertaking.
2: Liz, can you ask the next question?
4: How did you come
3: up with the idea?
4: So our sort of lead executive producer was a professor for us all he comes up with the ideas for the script or finds the story for the script and then pitches it to the writer's room, which is a different semester than, than the folks that go and do the directing. So after he pitches it, it becomes a really collaborative process with that class, all really advanced writers and filmmakers, et cetera. And so they all dove in and did the research on the actual time period, the actual event of the thing about Orson Welles himself. And then about sort of what Haiti meant in the 1930s, which is a very different thing of what it means now. It actually was like a vacation destination and just had much less war and crime as it does now, sadly. But I think with the film, we were able to, to give it a really nice justice and really play into, play into the fun and the
2: culture and art element. And then how long did you spend working on the film from like being brought on as a director to it being released?
4: I mean, in total, we're still going and it's it's been about four years. The directing of it all happened within a semester. The editing of it happened within a year. And then ever since we released in February of 2020, so right before everything shut down, sadly, we did have our premiere. We had like a carpet, pictures, you know, posters and things like that, luckily. and since that point, our producer, our sort of lead producer has been pushing it and getting it into, you know, hands and, and seen by eyes. And so it's recently got a distribution deal and it's coming out into theaters.
3: I am like tabling 15 more questions about that. So am might to assume this is your first feature. And then compared to all the other projects you made in film school and before, how difficult was this one? This is my first feature. This
4: one was how difficult was it Hmm. it's sort of hard to answer and it's like if you like being a filmmaker then you like those challenges right those late nights and all of the weird shit that you end up saying was like the moment the magic happened right (laughs) i think I think it's harder when you have less crew. On this guy we had crew, we had support, we had a lot of folks that were really dedicated to it, which was really cool. I feel like I've done so many student films and short films and things where you're really begging for favors and really trying to piece together like momentum. And this had a lot of spirit in it. Folks were really dedicated to it. I mean, getting folks to like Burbank at three in the morning is no easy feat, but folks did it in, you know, the dozens. So I wanna say that like all of that kept me going a lot. So I think this one was actually incredibly fun challenging in the way that it was so much material to get but you just we all sort of thought about it like every day we're making a little bit of a short film and then you know when you put it together it became a longer version.
3: So I went to USC and I graduated in 2010. I did the MFA program. Yeah so I'm you know fight on whatever. Yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) We didn't have anything like this right? So this I think the Don Quixote was the first one, yeah. So I'm just like. First of all, in awe that USC got their shit together to make this happen. That is amazing. Yeah. But also, like, aware that John Watson mm-hmm. was a big part of that. Could you talk a little bit about John Watson's bit. role? Sure. Absolutely.
4: So, John Watson was like the lead professor for this. He is an esteemed and renowned producer. He re- produced Robin Hood back in the day and, and several things since. And not sure what his impetus is in creating such a chaotic class, but I think it's the idea that giving the students this very real life experience on set filming a future film. And I think that's what we all wanted to go to, you know, big picture, if we wanted to go into television or film, but either way, going into long form, going into something, you know, studio or studio adjacent, but having this level of professionalism, industry exposure, a level of responsibility beyond like you just making your little personal short film to sort of assuage your childhood stories it was like a, a bigger undertaking it had all these like stakeholders it was this bigger thing and so I think that's what he you know ultimately wants is for us to get that experience and to also you know create a really cool movie they've done one more of these since Macbeth it's another movie based in the theater which we all think is really funny but they're doing Phantom of the Opera currently but this guy I believe was a lot of fun for John Watson I think he was really interested in making this one do well and be a you know a good product that would get some distribution and get out into the world
2: so since you made the film and you graduated from USC and you've gotten out into the world as a director like how has this helped you like do you feel like this has kind of had an impact in your experience like you know going into the to the world as a freelancer or has that not yet kind of that impact not been felt yet
4: yeah i would say that i freelanced before usc i've been working in film since i was 15 my freelance stuff was pre me getting my mfa so immediately after school i was i worked in imagine entertainment i worked at showtime and was in a totally different world than freelance the impact that voodoo is having now sort of four years later i am feeling in my
0: career and sort of like welding instructor alex Declare knows firsthand how vr training platforms like forge fx can help meet the demand for skilled workers anywhere you go look there's going to be a shortage of welders vr training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career the beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need Explore more stories like Alex's at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. Luxury is meant to be livable.
1: Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new Leather Collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at four ninety-nine ninety nine and sofas at five ninety-nine ninety-nine. Ashley, for the love of home.
4: Certain doors opening and things like that, like of course, you know, we all want a manager and an agent, etc. And so, like, those doors are opening now, but it is a bit, you know, a bit distant from when we filmed it, which was in, you
3: know, 2018-19. Can we talk a little bit about distribution and also casting in relation to distribution? When I was there, USC didn't have any classes on distribution, and we all left being like, what do we do? I don't understand. We didn't, like, we had a pitching class, and that was it. With 10 directors in a class format, I understand that your producers had a certain level of of autonomy but did you feel any sort of pressure to cast for distribution, for marketing, or was it that you used that SAG agreement that USC has and you just found the best people?
4: A little bit of both, but there was a lot of pressure to make sure that we casted well for it and casted some names. We have Jeremy Tardy, who's on Dear White People, the series on Netflix, and several other folks, Inger, all of our leads are our faces. We had the pressure. We also really wanted to cast it well. We wanted it to be appealing. Our casting director is renowned. Twinkie is known all over and she's known for casting really well, Black actors and period and and all sorts of things. And so having her name attached to it as well, and she came on as an executive producer to help continue to push this film, all of those elements help with securing distribution. The distribution world has not been in my hands at all. It's definitely all of our producers' work, but it was most definitely on our minds that we wanted to have really strong faces, really strong actors, like folks who are really going to, you know, play a part in being on that poster, as well as folks who were into the role because it was a bit of a strange project, you know, taking direction from 10 directors is a little bit crazy, but they were all really good sports. And we made sure that as a unit, we were really together and had our shit together so that we weren't confusing anybody and weren't creating sort of, you know, parallel worlds at all that we were really all functioning in that same, you know, voodoo world.
3: But USC was effectively acting as the studio, right? So it's like unless I'm wrong, unless this was like a five eighty two where you had your own ownership of the, sorry, I'm reverting back to USC, so you're good. like class I numbers. <laughs> you you understand this because this is how we talk. Yep. USC. Yep. yep. But if they're effectively acting as the studio, do you have to come to a quorum internally amongst the ten directors and then go to the professor and then go to, you know, whoever's responsible for financing like How many chains of approval do you have to go through? Sure, we had a chain of approval pretty much within
4: us, and then with John Watson, Mm. there was, I believe, one point where we did a full presentation for Warner Brothers. Exec came to our class, sat in the theater, and we played through the slides and presented him with like our look and feel, the way we wanted to do aesthetics, the casting that we had in mind, etc. And they were pretty hands off, as far as I know. You know, maybe John was on the phone with them a lot, but they were very cool about us having having a lot of free reign. They opened the doors up to the studio and we were in their like Brooklyn back lot and had an immense amount of freedom, I would say. We did, like I'll say it again, we had to have our shit shit together. And I think John Watson was there like at the beginning, sort of oversight and making sure that we were working together well, cooperating, etc. And that we had a plan. And once we proved that through multiple steps, we all had to kind of mockly shoot a bit of our scenes to show that we knew how we wanted to set up camera, that we knew about direct direction that we wanted to go in. And then once we were able to prove it, we did we sort of just operated like we've got this.
2: <laughs> so you talked about before like getting when you're doing this process project, you were like under a fine microscope as a director. How was the process to be selected as one of the 10 directors? Was that like a really yeah. long process of like trying to, you know, interview and prove yourself or like what was that about?
4: So when I said that, what I meant is that From the beginning of you entering into the MFA program, you're being watched. You're being watched by all of the chairs of the departments. (laughs) You're most definitely they they try to have a a pulse on every or they try to have a thumb on everybody's pulse. There are, you know, like chairs sort of fighting over students a bit, I will say. I was told many times that I can't try to produce and direct, but I needed to choose a track. And that was by a chair who wanted me to be in her track. And it's fine. I will say that I'm a creative director full-time now, so thanks a lot for that. Feel free to pop that in. (laughs) (laughs) There's no bad blood there. They're watching to see what tracks you gravitate towards and they're watching to see how I would say successful you sort of are aimed to go, what path you're leading towards. And I believe, you know, for a part of it, they're trying to help guide you towards something that you're going to be most successful in. I think sometimes they absolutely, you know, deter people in the wrong direction or are very unhelpful. But the idea once you get to the more like advanced classes, which are the ones where they're giving you funding or they're giving you permission and they're giving you the insurance or this class where they are, you know, oversighting a partnership with a Warner Brothers Studio. They're making sure that you can fill those positions successfully because USC's name does get attached to this for the remainder of its life. And ultimately, if it does well, right, that's a lot of public. That's a lot of great publicity for, you know, USC.
2: I'm just curious, like, like, because there's more than 10 directors in the MFA program, right? So, like, how did you get selected as one of the 10? I guess is the main question.
4: Yeah. So there's about 50 people per cohort. Folks split it into about five different tracks but there's no like you're never getting a degree in editing you're not getting a degree in directing you're getting a degree in production but just once you start you know you take an intermediate course you get to the advanced course you can kind of stick with that thing and get into different waves of sound design different ways of you know editing or you go into gaming or etc for directing there's different paths what you'd like to direct. There's like a television directing class. There's documentary directing classes. There's classes you can take where they, like I said, they give you sort of permission. They oversee your project and they give you the university's insurance to go make it. But it's sort of a self-run project on your own. And then there's a couple of classes at the School completely overseas funds, etc., which is this one, and five forty six, which is a short form, super competitive class to try to to try to get into. How do they select them? I don't know. You know, I think for this one, so there are classes like five forty six where you sort of audition to be a director or producer. I produced once for that class. I tried to direct twice and got denied, which was heartbreaking. For that one, you put yourself into the mix to try to be a part of the class. For this one, for the feature class, you get selected a bit. Like I got an email saying, you're being, like, considered for this class. Then there was a questionnaire to answer. There was, like, a short conversation with John Watson, and he pitched the story and sort of gauged the interest. I've never been a huge, like, Shakespeare fan, but I really liked the idea of centering it in the Caribbean. I have family that are Haitian, and it was like, yeah, this is so cool. I love the idea of it being in the Great Depression and being sort of about that Harlem Renaissance time. And so I think that that was probably part of it. I think each of the directors had some sort of cathartic thing with the story and that might have helped us sort of narrow it down a bit as
3: well yeah. yes I'm getting flashbacks. Of, I did 547, but all my friends tried to do 546. Nice. It's very heartbreaking for them as well.
4: Yeah. <laughs> heartbreaking. Like, I, yeah. A friend of mine had me on like suicide watch, which is a joke, but I'm right. like, woof.
3: Yeah. 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 546. <laughs> well, can you talk a little bit about post-production? I mean, is are we looking at, was this thought of as like an anthology in post-production? Like you had your own part and you oversaw that, or was it all 10 overseeing the arc of the whole film? It
4: was much more of an anthology model. We all oversaw our episode essentially you could come in and out of like the editing session with one single editor bless his heart and he was able to do all of that and we could come in and see what was going on but we pretty much all stuck with our episodes and then we did i believe at the end we did like an overview watch of it
2: so i'm really curious about like you know you graduated usc you worked for these like you know big companies now you're in northern california right mm-hmm. so out of all the people that we've talked to at USC, mo- most people don't move away from Los Angeles. They usually stay. So what was what drove you to Northern California?
4: Yeah, a couple of things. The pandemic was huge shifter. There was a moment where the governor of California was like, We might do martial law and my mom was like, Get home right now. And it's like, Okay. <laughs> that was the first time like me in a suitcase had come back home for a, a chunk of time. And it had to do with being like furloughed from Imagine and, you know, not necessarily wanting to go back into that space due to just like there's a lot of dues to be paid, et cetera. And I don't knock that at all. But some of the studios are really hard to navigate up, especially if you feel like you're a really creative person with a lot to offer and don't necessarily fit that sort of mold that they need folks to kind of go through in those <laughs> spaces. That's my very diplomatic way of
2: saying Here's it. your coffee. <laughs> yes, sir. No, sir. Thank you very much. Ah, oh, yes. Right away, sir. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was working like as a very, very junior sort of creative assistant and just knew that I could do more. And when I left there, when I went to Showtime, it was completely from home until we went into production. So for like a quick stint, I was in New York and doing that and was just there for a single season of Couple Therapy, which I absolutely loved. I had a great time. New York is not my favorite place. I'm very much a Bay Area person and just feel at home here. And so when I made the decision to like try to make it work here, you know, I was like, we don't all have to go to L.A. And L.A.'s traffic is fucking insane. <laughs> and just through divine intervention, found a, a good job where I could be a creative director. I have so much creative freedom and, you know, be able to work on projects, you know, small and large and do the thing that I really want to do and also have my sort of stuff on the side that I'm still producing. It's just worked out. I'm a happier person in the Bay Area than I was in L.A. as well. (laughs)
2: Nice.
3: Can you talk a little bit about the model that was created by the class and whether you think it's a sustainable model for filmmaking? I mean, I don't know what other projects you have in the books right now in terms of features and and whether you're using multiple directors or just you as a But I'd be curious if there are any benefits to that type of major collaborative Mm -hmm. effort.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a huge benefit to it. I think when we were all in it, we were like, this is crazy. And how is this going to work? And we're all such different people. But the benefit is huge. I mean, we we all got to shoot a feature sort of like point blank period, science field the delivered, we made a feature. And to have that kind of experience, you know, like it might be another couple of years until we're all on a set so large on a backlot of a major studio, working with major, you know, segments preferred actors bless their hearts but all of those elements it's sort of like you know kind of once in a lifetime or once in a decade sort of experience so I think it's great. It's crazy when you're in it. Looking back on it, I wouldn't have changed it for anything. I think it was an absolutely right choice for me to make and to be involved in. I would not necessarily do it again. Like, I don't think it makes sense to have 10 directors on a feature, especially once you're sort of like out and seasoned and experienced. You don't need so much support. But at our kind of, I'll say tender age of being in school, it was nice to have somebody to turn to and say, like, are we doing this right? Would you do it differently? Like, how are we going to tackle this together, all kind of aided and like added to our bucket of skills, what we could all do, because we did come from like different ways of working, totally different, you know, streams of thought, different ways of being creative we all had different ways of even working with the actors. Some of us were like super involved with the actors and some folks wanted to sit in the chair behind Video Village and and have that separation. (laughs) Meanwhile, I was like barefoot and in the scene with everybody, but that's just... (sighs) But it was interesting, right? You can get different things from seeing different people's style so up close you know we're not like reading the book of what david lynch did on you know xyz you're physically there with another director watching their process and like able to absorb you know anything that works for you you're able to absorb from them
2: nice yeah just a comment I and mean, there's a good chance like a lot of directors never get to make a movie for a million dollars or two million dollars or whatever to, so of to be on those right. kinds of that kind of level with that kind of crew and that kind of set and everything like maybe yeah. that won't ha- ever happen again and i mean and in, and in, that's not like it's a bad thing. Like making movies for half a million or whatever or less, or is totally a noble thing. It's just totally. I think it's a pretty amazing experience that you had. Is what I'm trying to say.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
2: But what what I wanted to to kind of circle back to is like you said that now, like you know, four years later, after the press release and being a deadline and like the trailer coming out and doing so well and all that stuff, like you're you're starting to see doors open. And I'm just curious, like in what way are you just getting like cold outreach from people, like saying, "Hey, like I want to represent you"? Or are you reaching out to managers and agents and getting positive responses? Like what what kind of things in detail, if you're willing to discuss? are happening now at this stage.
4: Yeah. I'm not willing to discuss.
2: Ooh. ISIS out. All right. Fair enough. (laughs)
4: Sorry. I'll give you an update, but we had a New York Times article come out yesterday, which was kind of cool.
2: Oh, nice. Deadline
4: in New York Times and whatever that... Equals to you in your mind. I'm I'm protecting. I'm protecting a nugget right now.
3: Protect away. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about benefits of it as well, though. But maybe you could speak to this. You know, I assume that Warner Brothers and USC had their grubby little mitts over everything in terms of the future of how this film is exploited, how it's marketed, the returns, the revenue, rights, windows, territories, everything. You please feel free to correct me. But did going through this process and then having to step away for distribution, did that inform whether you want to or do not want to be involved in that in the future? Mm-hmm. Yes, lots of people had their
4: grubby hands over it. <laughs> USD also recoups their investment plus some from any money that the film makes.
3: You weren't paid, right? There's no I, I didn't miss that you got some sort of fee for. do Okay. Please right, go on, correct. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
4: No, no problem. We didn't get paid, the actors didn't get paid, everyone was on sort of defer payment. We do have a number of SAG folks that need to be paid sort of like after USC recoups, then the SAG folks recoup, actors, not SAG, which I don't even know if anyone wasn't SAG. And then we'll get, you know, 10 bucks at the end or a gift card or something to uh, In-N-Out. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely informed the way that, like, I'd want to be a director. I've been a producer and a director separately and together for a long time. And there are certain moments of producing that are just made for a different mindset it has you have to be like business savvy a manager supervisor is totally fulfilling work and I, I I have loved doing that and then now sort of at the place that I am in life very much I'm really enjoying being that creative mind to a project and being able to rely and trust a producer is so nice so I'll say that like yes it's informed that I don't want to deal with distribution I just want them to call me and say okay here's the release day and this is when your Q&A section is but it, it's a part of like you have to kind of go through the Reins of seeing what it's like to produce and seeing what it's like to be good at producing and to find folks that are like really naturally inclined to do that we all know people who are just like natural producers and can handle it to the tea and it's an art form in and of itself and just like at this point in my life i don't know since my birthday i've just really enjoyed being like creative
2: nice so you know this is your first feature you didn't write it most first features from most independent filmmakers are ones that they wrote because it's just like out of necessity for the most part so do you feel like having done it that way like are you like now oh yeah director for hire like give me an awesome script I want to direct it or are you kind of more reverting to like oh no I want to write my own thing as my 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 next project I
4: mean you know if anybody wants to hire a director director feature I'm available (laughs) I very much want to do my own stuff I have you know stories I've been working on for years that are like my babies and those are the things that I want to direct for sure but of course like would not knock an experience to do a feature is again it's an experience you know, just come across and it it blows your mind, you know, no matter what it's going to be, no matter how much money is involved, etc. But to get that amount of people together, like rooting for the success of this movie, creating, you know, something out of nothing, you know, if the opportunity were to arise, you have to do it.
2: Like going through that process of, you, you said you learned a lot about directing and like kind of like finding your own voice as a director. Like, But what's like one big takeaway from your experience directing Voodoo Macbeth that, has like kind of informed you you know in your directing you know your future directing
4: Hmm. the big thing that i took from directing voodoo mcbeth was how much i love directing and that's it's sort of as simple as that it was all of the crazy things that you could imagine it was all of the fires that would happen on set it was all of the craziness all of the like late night strange food extras not showing up you know meltdowns in the wardrobe department etc but like Incredibly fun. It's, you know, it's like I used to tell my mom, like, I know I'm calling you and I'm venting, but I really do love what I'm doing. Like, I know I'm calling you with like all of these tragic things, right? That make it sound like this thing is just not going to work. Cause at one point she was like, this movie just isn't going to happen. And I was like, no, 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 no. The movie's happening. I'm just venting. I had a long day on set. But that's sort of the very cool part of it to me. Like, I love that there's always some kind of chaos to figure out. And again, like, those are those moments where that magic happens and somehow. We, again, make something out of nothing. But, like, you get something on screen, you get something recorded on tape, and you make a movie with it. Kind of amazing.
2: Nice. I have one last question. So, basically coming out of school, like, you're way ahead of most of us, right? Like, you've directed your first feature. Like, that doesn't usually happen for, like, you you said, a few years or whatever. You know, and I know that you said you came out of the experience, like, loving directing and, like, kind of, like, growing as a director and kind of, like, finding your voice as a director. But do you have a sense of, like, what you see your future like? Like, do you want to be, like, a feature director and, like, that's what you're focusing on? Are you, like, trying to go into television like does it matter to you are you just like trying to direct whatever you can like has has any of that kind of stuff like, like formulated in your mind over the last few yeah. years?
4: Yeah absolutely right now I want to just be directing so like even being a creative director in like this commercial kind of corporate ad space is working right because it's still sort of working my director's muscle and refining skills like continuously learning about the newest equipment lenses cameras that are coming out still and so I can say like oh now I know that I want to go use the Komodo one i'm shooting my whatever right had i not been working actively in the field if i've been behind a desk you know scheduling somebody's coffee meetings with musicians and actors i wouldn't know what's kind of going on in the world i wouldn't really have my finger on the pole so i get a lot out of actively working as a director even currently even if it's not like the exact thing that i want to be doing and then bigger picture I want to be a future director I would love to work in television you know for hire on seasons and you know episodes or on series is series and episodes
2: not seasons (laughs) or seasons too you could do a whole season people, you know, people, people do want. that that happens these days <laughs> right just a quick shout out to glass and marker which is where zoe and i both work yeah, these absolutely. guys all rock they're all going to be yeah. hearing this i'm going to share it with them all whether Zoe wants it or not so <laughs>
4: no absolutely share it away hi glass and marker i love you <laughs>
3: <laughs> i think we'll be doing a rapid fire round of our last questions as a reminder, these are the questions we ask every guest. And so the first question is, what's the first film you ever made? It doesn't have to be feature. What's the first film you ever made? And how do you feel about it now? First
4: film I ever made was probably, you know, I think I made other ones right before this, but they were all practiced. But I made a short documentary. 2009. I was very young and it was to document my experience at this like garden program in Berkeley and it was incredibly successful at some festivals. It went all over the world and it was so weird. I was like 16, 16 and a half and I had someone helping me enter it into all these festivals but he kept being like hey Zoe, you're feeling bad into another festival. Hey Zoe, you're feeling bad into another festival. And I have all of these posters and like mementos from all these different festivals like all across my desk and all around my room and I actually got a resolution from the state of california for my work in film from this little documentary that i made when i was teen wow and i have that up it's framed in this like gorgeous gold thing and signed by the senators of california and so, like that i'm so proud of and that is what changed my life because once i saw that i could be successful and tell a cool story that was like super personal to me man i opened the thing and i'm like hi my name is zoe and i used to be a student at the school it was just cathartic for me to talk about being in this program when i was a middle schooler and to see that resonate with people like beyond the borders of berkeley or oakland or you know just the bay in general was mind-blowing it got me where i am now
2: (laughs) wow Amazing. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
4: The best advice that I got was that you can't do both because I was like, why not? I'm going to go do both. And I've done both.
3: And it's producing and directing? Producing and directing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's bullshit. I've done both too.
3: Totally. Yeah. Screw you guys. (laughs) (laughs) What's the worst advice? Just the worst filmmaking advice, bar none. Worst filmmaking advice?
1: I think what's
4: the worst filmmaking advice? I know I've gotten a lot. I think just But what's coming to mind for me is like taking advice from anybody that doesn't understand where you're coming from. taking advice from anybody that doesn't have their mind open at all can really mother creativity and makes it so you can't even sort of figure out an out way you know or you can't even figure out an entry point with that person which is tough and that exists sort of all throughout filmmaking so I think the way to sort of combat that is protect your heart protect your art but making sure that like when it's young and fresh and like really vulnerable that you're bringing it to folks that are going to understand it so that it can grow and have some strength on its own to be able to go up against the people who may not and who may ask questions
2: About it. Wow, amazing. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker?
4: Yes, to be very successful. (laughs)
2: <laughs> how do you define a success though that's what we talk about that a lot on the show It's like what does success yeah. mean
4: yeah success means like getting it in front of a lot of people you know that idea of you know having it in theaters and for like all kinds of people that you never you know it's not just your friends that you ask to come to the screening mm. in the backyard it's like folks you have no idea, you know you've never crossed paths with coming in and watching a movie in the theater it's amazing
3: if you could go back in time what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself Mm,
2: you've got this trust yourself keep going final question is making movies hard
4: oh my god if someone said it's not hard they're lying <laughs>
2: <laughs> we have a few people five or six
4: yeah so it's not, it, it is hard it's hard work <laughs> it's hard work it's you know, I hate when people act like filmmaking is... Like, I hated when people would say, oh, you're in art school. I'm like, I'm not, you know... And no snuff to art school, but I was like, I'm not in a studio painting by myself. <laughs> filmmaking is coordinating 100 people to be at one place at one time and to be on the same fucking mindset to make a story that does not exist. It's like, it's doing the impossible. It's hard work. If you're, you know, good at it, maybe it gets easy at certain points, but it's it's a job.
2: So, Zoe, where can people go to find out more about you and Voodoo McDeff? Where should we go? It's a plug time, plug time.
4: Plug time, plug time. I mean, feel free to, you know, follow me on Instagram and blow it up. You'll see some personal stuff Mixed in with professional stuff
2: mm-hmm.
4: I'm also at my website ZoeSolnov.com You can Google me And find me on IMDB Etc We've got an article up on Deadline We've got an article up on New York Times For Food and Macbeth But I'm all over I mean, you know Google me, baby
2: Are you a writer with a great screenplay Just sitting on your desktop? Are you looking for written analysis Of your work by experienced creatives? Are you trying to get industry professionals To read your work But you don't know how to reach them?
3: Then enter the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition Created by veteran screenwriter Gordon Hoffman, the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition has helped unknown writers launch their professional careers for over 25 years. This
2: year, the Blue Cat Screenwriting Competition will award $18,500 in cash, and everyone who enters will receive written analysis on their work, and getting feedback on your script is worth, like, a lot.
3: The deadline to enter is October 30th, but if you miss it, you could still catch their late deadline on
2: December 11th. Check them out on the social medias at Blue Cat Writers on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.
3: So stop waiting to be discovered and send your feature screenplay, TV pilot, and short film script to Blue Cat today.
2: Also, don't forget, we have a 10% discount code for your submission to Blue Cat. So use the code BCHARD23 when you apply. All caps. All caps, baby. <laughs> Liz, what do you remember about our taco, Zoe?
3: I remember I lost internet while we were talking and there's probably, I mean, I haven't heard, but I think there's probably an awkwardness to the beginning of the conversation where we'll see if Jeff keeps it in where you two are probably like, where's Liz? What are we doing? Should we go forward? I don't know. And then I had to do the rest of the interview from my phone. So I remember that. I remember that (laughs) Zoe and I went through the same program at USC. So there was kind of a little bit of, I was drawn to have like that inside joke ribbing experience with her, right? That I think a lot of USC alums like to have with each other. We've referenced like class names a lot and talk about how hard 508 was. So for me, it was like a weird, it was like a reunion with someone I've never met. So that was really nice.
2: (laughs) That's really sweet. (laughs) I work with Zoe. So it was just really fun to chat with her outside of the confines of work and just kind of get to know her a little bit better as a filmmaker. I've definitely heard some about of, of her work before but it was really cool to get into the details especially with this whole USC thing and like how this movie was made and what her experience was like it kind of sounds like it was sort of sort of like getting a, like a preview of what it would be to direct like a two million dollar movie yeah, although the movie budget wasn't actually two million dollars but it was like the resources they had and the way it was made was as if the movie was that kind of budget Yeah. so it seemed like a really incredible experience and basically like if I was a film stu- if I was a student trying to get into film school, I would be like, fuck all the other film schools. I want to get into USC where you actually get the chance to make a movie, potentially.
3: Chapman did that too. I don't know if it still does, but Chapman was the one that led the way. I just oh, wanted really? to give Chapman some love because I think that USC is actually emulating the Chapman program.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. I I know some people who went to Chapman. I don't know much about Chapman, but apparently it's pretty cool. I know that Colin Hanks went to Chapman. So
3: well, they have a lot. Of, I mean, Colin they had a spread. lot <laughs> of great equipment and studio space. USC clearly does as well and and I'm not going to, whatever, I'm really proud to be from USC. But there's something about USC that has a chip (laughs) on its shoulder, right? It's like, oh, they have it? Oh, we'll we'll do that, and we'll do it with Warner Brothers, you know?
2: Okay, well, here's the two things I have about USC that I've learned in my career as a, you know, in video production, filmmaking, whatever. We did a shoot at USC at, at the track, and yeah. when we were there, they were shooting a scene for Veep on campus at the same time, and your shit was fucking nice, dude. <laughs> like, that's a nice-ass campus. I saw some people doing some, some film students doing some stuff and moving some gear around. It was pro gear. Yeah. You guys got it going on. No, no need for no chips on USC's shoulder. Your shit is tight. <laughs> no right, worries well, my
3: joke is that like they tore down the old building in the cinema school and they you know they did this they built a new one and it looks like a las vegas hotel like i don't know if you've seen it but you're just like Oh the bellagio like it's just like there's like palm trees and it's very polished and it's excessively <laughs> large for you know no one is hanging out inside because it's too sterile oh wow so there's just this weird optics thing that USC likes to participate in that but whatever yeah our stuff is good we have good stuff
2: yeah that, that that's a pretty funny like Perspective on the whole thing because I think from an outsider, it's like, wow, that's so epic. But then, you know, on the inside, it's like, oh, we made it just because we wanted to prove ourselves. But it's like, it doesn't really matter why, you know, it just, it's awesome, you know? So, bottom line go
3: fight on.
2: fight on and you guys got a good football team too i think so it's like go corn huskers
3: who are the worst team possible this year we fired our coach oh it's, man and yeah whatever i don't want to i don't need to get into it i can't even oh, talk man. on
2: this level don't even get me started on the raiders uh, last <laughs> week was in- embarrassing embarrassing <laughs> hopefully what happened this last sunday was less embarrassing for them <laughs> Okay, it's time for the game, Liz. I'm so excited to ask you this question.
3: I've got my pen. I'm taking notes.
2: Here it goes. I got to do the voice because everyone likes it. You and Eric. Here is the question for the game. You've signed on to direct a musical. This is so Liz. I love it. It's a very big budget and includes a soundstage with elaborate sets, dozens of professional dancers, and an A-list actor as your lead. Mm, Sounding great. The problem is the lead actor cannot sing or dance, nor are they willing to learn. (laughs) Sounds familiar. (laughs) They're only doing the film to fulfill a contract obligation. If you drop them, you'll lose your funding. But if you keep them, you'll have to film a musical with someone who can't sing. Do you A, drop the actor and just hope to find a different A-lister to make to take their place? B, drop the A-list actor and get a B-list musical theater actor who can definitely carry the show, but your budget will be dramatically reduced? C, overdub the actor and try to stage dance numbers where the dancers carry the scenes? Or D, other. What do you do, director? What do you do?
3: You dub them. You dub them. There's like years, <laughs> decades, decades, of musical theater films where the singer is not the... I mean, I think there's this one oh my god jill blackledge and my husband will yell at me for not knowing this actress on hand but there's one actress that played the musical theater voice for like for like audrey hepburn for deborah carr like a very fancy singer I mean, I will have to ask Sean in a second, but I think it's fine. I think it's fine to dub. Look at Singing in the Rain, the great story about dubbing. And then, yes, for the dance numbers, you know, I don't remember Rex Harrison dancing his way through My Fair Lady, you know. I think there's a world where you can have kind of like a quote unquote straight man character who doesn't participate in the dancing. Cecily Tyson and sorry, not Cecily Tyson. What's her name? Cecily from Cecily Strong. Cecily Strong and Brigadoon is not the strongest Dancer in the world but she, she You know she made an effort Yeah I wouldn't say Keegan Michael Key Is the best singer in the world but he did his Job on Brigadoon you can surround You can surround your lead With a lot of classically Trained fantastic musical theater talent Dubbing is fine what did you think What were you gonna do
2: Same yeah. yeah, I think you you don't really have a choice. I think because I think if you do any of the other things, your movie ends. Like right, yeah. like I don't think you're gonna have a big budget musical without a lead. You know that can support it. You know unless somehow like you know in the Heights happened, which is amazing because that guy's not a not a super famous or anything. Anthony but they do Ramos. Some more- Wait, who? Yeah.
3: Oh, I love it. Now, yeah. Marnie Nixon. Ramos. Sorry, I have to give Mar- Marnie Nixon as the voice for My Fair Lady and The King and I and West Side Story. Ah, Marnie Nixon, nice.
2: yeah, yeah, because Anthony Ramos is not a big name. It's not like Ryan Gosling or something, you know. No,
3: you're right. Yeah, he's a Broadway name, right? He was in Hamilton. Yeah. So,
2: right, right. But I mean, they did get that other guy who was in the NWA movie.
3: You know, oh, I, I love, love him. That. Oh my God, what he's is it? He's on. He's in like three decks of mine as he's an actor. I want to work so with.
2: Oh, great. Oh my God, yeah. I don't think he actually made any decks of mine, but I mean, I do. I would love to work with him.
3: <laughs> (laughs) Now I have to look. I'm just like Googling over here. Just.
2: But I wonder, did he sing in 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 the Heights? What's his name? Ryan Gosling did sing in La La Land. I didn't think he did, but they didn't have him do any dancing, you know, which which is totally like part of the answer, right? It's like you just Corey don't Hawkins. Corey Hawkins.
3: I love Corey Hawkins. I don't know if it, if he didn't, he really looks like he did. Like he looks so comfortable in that form. I would assume that that is his voice.
2: Yeah, apparently he did sing. Yeah, in, in the Heights. So that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I feel like more and more these days, like, you know, people are... Got the singing down You know Maybe not the dancing But like I know Hugh Jackman Can sing and dance Like, like nobody's business so, The
3: Rock know. can sing The Rock and Moana is, <laughs> And remember when he came out as, eh, It's okay I thought He'll, he was lovely I will the mean He's no I don't
2: know what He's no Hugh Jackman Ron Williams I mean, Yeah sure sure Singing in, in Aladdin I right, was right, right. I was at a park the other day That, that like Is like a, a little park for kids And uh, they were playing All these Disney Disney songs And they played The Aladdin Genie song But it was The Will Smith version Oh. And it's like, no offense to Will Smith, but it's like, no one's going to be able to do this better than Rob Williams oh. did. Like, there's just no way. You know, it's just a it pales in comparison. I did see that on Broadway, though, in in New York. And the guy who did the Genie song on the New York Broadway thing was really great. But I think it was because of all the spectacle and the dancing and the blah, 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 right. blah that's happening on stage makes it better. You've got
3: like a CG blob with Will Smith in that movie. Right? <laughs> I
2: didn't even watch it. I could Oh, well,
3: I've seen it. it a lot because, you know, Colin. Hashtag Colin.
2: Hashtag Colin. <laughs> but,
3: but I think, you know, I thought, actually, I loved La La Land. And I thought Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling were fantastic in it, and I know there was backlash, right? Because they weren't the perfect singers and the perfect dancers, but they well, were great actors. I thought, and they they had the heart of the film, and I thought that they were good enough. They were good enough for me to believe in them, so I'm I'm okay with that.
2: Yeah, my main problem with Walland isn't Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, although I wish they did get people who could dance because they singing they got the singing. That's good, but like they didn't do any of the dancing really, and like all the dancing mm-hmm. numbers are with you know real dancers, which is great. But I mean, my biggest problem with that movie is just not enough singing and dancing for it to be a musical. It's like half a musical, half a drama. That
3: opening number, Another Day of Sun, it's great. That makes up for not having enough songs. I think it's
2: great. And the one I really like a lot is the one after the party where they're like, you know, it, it, Ryan Gosling does a little like kind of singing dance number thing with Emma Stone in the park bench or whatever. Yeah, the bench, in the park. Of course, oh my god, course. that was great. But they just needed three more. (laughs) Three or four more. You got me. I would have taken it. I would have taken it.
3: I'll, I'll always take more songs in a musical. But I'm a big fan. I
2: enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed La La Land. More than most, I think. Or that more than, than the haters. Do, Liz, do I have time to ask you this question really quick or no?
3: I'll try. I'll try. Wait, okay. Let's just try. Are
2: our, our reviews important to the release of your film? Yes or no?
3: Okay. So, when I pitch a film and it's in that kind of murky area, it's not a genre film, it's an indie drama. If I have a pull quote from Variety, it helps, right? If I can show the access of the film achieved and it's a positive review from the New York Times or whatever, it helps me for pitch distributors or platforms of distribution. In terms of, does it convert sales for audiences? You know, you and I talked to Ryan Davis from Smart House Creative. It's like, there's no way to track that conversion. You don't really know. I think word of mouth, and that's what I've heard, is that word of mouth is still by far the most important thing in deciding whether you go to see a movie or not. But if a film can punch above its weight class, so to speak, with a good review or a high-profile outlet, it shows an audience, platform, and distribution company something about its reach and its
2: power and its influence. So, I do think reviews still matter. I also think like in the very basic sense, it's like, you know, you got your movie. Your movie is now basically your calling card, right? It's like it's like your business card for anyone who wants to work with you in the future on your next project. Right. And if someone looks up, you know, the alternate and sees a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, that's going to have that a matters. better impact on them than if it was Rotten, right? Yeah. Or had no tomato meter at all and just had a couple of reviews, you know. But if those reviews are positive, I still think that is going to be like, oh, it was a small movie. It got good reviews. It just didn't, you know, get that many, whatever. That's not the director's fault, you know. So... Yeah, I don't know. That's what I kind of what I've kind of fallen down on is that it's just a good public perception of the movie, basically.
3: Hollywood respects scope, right? Like that's Mm. why micro budget filmmakers are always told, don't talk about your budget. Don't talk about how much you made with so little because you appear more attractive if you have been in charge of more money. It's really a ridiculous Mm. thing. So if your if the optics of your film show a certain scope, like you very few people can get a New York Times review without a really great publicist, and that publicist costs a certain amount of money and that shows you that your film team has resources or a network. Like it's all this like Mm. waterfall of deductions that people in Hollywood make. So if you're not in tomatoes, then you're thinking, well, at least that film had the resources to have a press team. To go out to those critics. It's a very short judgment call that's being made, but it means something.
2: Yeah. Funny thing is the majority of the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes are from my festival run (laughs) or... From a person I d- reached out to directly, so it's it's funny right. that like that's but they really don't know. the truth. Right? But they don't know, right? Know. That's what actually happened, you know. And you you
3: did the work. You put the work in to build the yeah. foundation to set yourself for set yourself up for
2: success. Yeah, I, I would. It's funny because when I was doing the festival release for the alternate, once I got distribution, my distributor and my producer told me, "Don't focus on reviews now because you want right. to focus on reviews when the movie comes out." Right. But it's like, oh, well, if I had focused on reviews for, like, the Other World's Film Festival, for instance, that was in Austin, and maybe the Austin Chronicle would have covered it at that time, but now they don't give a fucking shit because it doesn't have anything to do with Austin. Right. It's like, that would have been smarter to do. So, now I'm, like, kind of going against my distributor's advice, and I feel like the next movie, if we do a festival run, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to hit up hard every single film festival, no matter if we have distribution or not, I'm going to try to get those reviews at the time, because that's at least right. something that they can hold on to, you know?
3: or, like you ask Richard Whitaker at the Austin Chronicle for a feature coverage at that time, right? right? and or an yeah. interview or whatever it is. so Sick. it's still it's still possible.
2: sent out to to Richard Whittaker. I think I emailed him the other day, um, <laughs> asking if he would <laughs> review my movie hey richard do us a solid please yeah it's never too late a late review would still be great but yeah that's all i got
3: (laughs) well all of you can always send us a question comment or suggestion to podcast and making if you like the show you can leave us a review on itunes check us out on facebook instagram twitter at mmih podcast youtube at making movies is hard podcast poor at the international screenwriters association we're big fans of theirs the ISA is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. They do consultation courses. They publish your log line to network, a network of industry professionals. They do contests. Head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Zoe Salnov for coming on this show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Freimutz, for doing the editing for, we, we love you, Jeff. We don't know you, but we, yeah, we feel we love you. Thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. We also love you, Eric. Don't feel left out. Thanks to all of you for listening, and talk to y'all next week.
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome.